And as you're sitting down again and grabbing your Bible, I hope, I invite you to open them to the book of Ephesians. We are going to take the second step in our study of the book of Ephesians. I titled my series, Walk as Children of Light. Again, as a reminder, I'm guessing many of you are already aware of these things. If you want to follow along on a handout, it's on the back side of your bulletin. If that distracts you, then don't do that. Just pay attention. Whatever works easiest or best for you. Walk as children of light. Last week we covered the first verse and the introduction where Paul introduced himself and to whom he was writing. This week I entitled this specific message, Grace and Peace. And it comes from the second verse. Uh, So we're not going to make a whole lot more progress. Some of you may have been wondering how we could get uh, around 30 messages out of here. Well, if you take one verse at a time, it's not that hard to do. Paul writes this in verse 2. This is, by the way, still an introduction verse. That's why we're going so slow. We will take some bigger chunks as we go along because they fit together. But uh, we're still introducing. Last week, I shared a lot of background so we could become familiar with the saints who were in Ephesus. This week, I'd like to spend my time and my attention on introduction, some major themes that are present in the book of Ephesians. One of my goals... I haven't even gotten to read the verse yet, but one of my goals uh, as I preach to you, one of the reasons, one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons I preach to you in this kind of format is because I uh, believe it's really important for us to see the Bible as a whole, to see letters as a whole, the books as a whole, but also the entirety of Scripture as a whole. And I think that happens best when we systematically work through exegetically studying God's Word. It does not happen quite as well when we uh, do topical sermons because we pick out a few verses here and a few verses there, and we don't always keep the context. So in in an effort to help us see that, because we're going to dive in and we're going to see lots of little specific things as we work through the book of Ephesians, I want to make sure that at the beginning I give some overarching themes that hopefully will stay in our heads as we walk through the details so that we can see how they kind of always are pointing back and fitting those themes. And also, of course, at the end, I'll always take a sermon to kind of tie it back together, to conclude, to remind us of these things that you are hearing today, in fact. Paul writes the second verse here. He's still in his introduction. He says, here's who I am. Here's who I'm writing to. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace And peace, two words that are off to the beginning of an epistle. So I think when I looked back, uh, I actually had a message that was entitled the exact same thing when we did a study in the book of Philippians. Not surprisingly, because guess how Paul opens that letter? With the same words, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace, these incredible words. Grace, of course, is the unmerited favor that we receive from God. Unmerited, you know what that word means? What does it mean to say unmerited? What's another good, what are synonyms for unmerited? Undeserved. That's the biggest one we often think of. It's undeserved. We didn't do anything to earn it. Put it that way. Grace is something that we did not earn. We did not pay for. We did not put God in any kind of position where he owes us anything. That's grace. When we receive something from him, that's grace. Peace is the Greek word erane, which means to be whole or to be joined. That's what it literally means, to be joined. Now the idea, as it's carried in the word in all of Scripture, is that we are joined with God. Because that's how, like when they would use that word, peace, or, or, uh, they, they, or shalom in the Hebrew, it would be a greeting, and a greeting of wishing blessings and health and wealth to people and goodness to people. But it's done so in the context that that only happens when we are one with God. That's why Paul writes these words this way. Grace to you and peace from where? 
Not just any undeserved favor, not just that you get lucky and you win the lottery or that things happen to work out for you, coincidentally, but that grace comes to you from God and peace comes to you from God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I go too far in this, I just want to illustrate something that, uh, just to pull in a bit of rest of Scripture, I want you to imagine for a moment, if you will, that you are the king of a domain, of a kingdom. You're in charge of a kingdom, and you have a certain amount of resources and power at your disposal. Probably feels pretty nice, but uh, if one day you realize that there is a, an opposing king coming towards you with a far greater force with the intention of, of uh, destroying you, and as you sit down and think about how this is going to work out, you realize that it's not going to work out too well in your favor, I would imagine it would not take you long to understand that your best course of action, unless you wish to be foolish, your best course of action is to send someone or something out ahead as this king is coming towards you and to inquire whether there might be some favor he might grant to you and ask for peace, right? Otherwise, you will become crushed. Well, as it turns out, the scenario I just gave you, I asked you to imagine yourself in that, but as it turns out, that's actually an exact scenario that Jesus gave. Did you know that? If it sounded familiar, it's because it's from the Scriptures, that's an exact scenario Jesus gave. It's in a section in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, where Jesus has titled this, that we should count the cost. Are you familiar with those verses? We should count the cost. We often know the other side of that part, uh, that, that other part of that, that conversation better, because it's where Jesus says that no man sits down to build a tower, or starts building a tower without having first made sure he has enough to finish it, because he didn't want to start and not be able to finish it. And after that, he says exactly what I just told you. It, not word for word, but... I, Pretty much like that. What king, if he has, I think he says 10,000 soldiers, uh, when he sees an opposing king coming toward him with 20,000 soldiers, would not send a delegate. Well, I'll just put the verse up there. Luke 14, 32. If not, when he realizes that he's not going to be able to win this battle, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about what, what, what Jesus was actually saying with that. I want to make sure this morning you understand that. Because he's talking about counting the cost. Making sure you count the cost when you decide or decide not to follow Jesus. So what is he actually saying here? Why do you use language of a king with warriors and a king that's coming with, and he won't be able to overcome it? Here, well, here's my take. Let me, just, let me just tell you what my take on that is. I believe Jesus is telling you that someday when he returns and we will be asked to meet God's standard of righteousness... We will be crushed. We will have no chance. There is no option for prevailing. It's as if you were a king that had 10 soldiers and there was an army of a million coming towards you. How do you like your chances? I don't. If that's the case, count the cost. If you find out that when the end comes down, you will not have any chance at prevailing, then perhaps you should, while he's still a long way off, think what he's saying, before the return of Christ, while he's still a long way off, you should send and ask for peace. You should cry out and say, can there be grace that I may find and peace that I may find so that I am not crushed when he comes? Well, he's actually pointing to himself, right? He is that peace. That's why he says you should count the cost. You know, what he's literally saying is you should figure out whether in your good works you can get to heaven or whether you have no chance. And if you have no chance, then try to find something out ahead of time before you happen to get there that actually allows you to enter. 
ask for peace. It's why he's called the Prince of Peace. Well, I, I use this example because Paul just opened up his letter and said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is with these ideas that actually are represented a lot through the whole book of Ephesians. The whole letter is filled with these ideas or this outpouring, this expression of grace and peace. I hope today you'll see what I mean by that. There really are two major themes from my perspective, two major themes in the book of Ephesians. There's two reasons, two big reasons why Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians that we're going to uncover as we go through it. I don't think either are going to be a surprise to you, by the way. The first is Paul wrote because he wanted to exalt Jesus Christ. He wanted to lift high who Jesus was. Now, in many ways, you could say all of Scripture points to Jesus, right? I'm one of those people that says that. All of Scripture points to Jesus in some way. But in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians especially, Paul is very specific. He's very flowery with some of his words. He's very, uh, he, he goes in depth to some of these things. But he is very clear that he has one thing in mind, and that is to elevate Jesus. That is to exalt who Jesus is. That's to lift up the name of Jesus. That's to take the people that are reading the letter and saying, whatever you thought of Jesus before, you should think even higher of him. So we will do the same as we journey through the book of Ephesians. We will understand that in major... Now, there's little sub-themes, of course, we're going to find. I'm going to point out some of those sub-themes in a little bit. But there are... And there's other things you could also glean from that text. No, no question about that. We probably will do a few of those things too. But overarchingly, the first half by chapter, the first three chapters of Ephesians, the main emphasis for Paul is he wants us to take whatever we thought of Jesus before and say, let's elevate that some. Because no matter how glorious you think Jesus is, I can assure you, he's even more glorious than that. He's even more majestic than that. And I can assure you someday when you will see him face to face, you will not disagree with that statement. His purpose is the exaltation of Christ. And then he turns the corner because Paul is so good at doing these things and says, I also want to spend some time with practical application. And his thrust here with the second half of the book, chapters four through six, is how this exalted Christ ought to be in the church, ought to be on display in the church. How he should be evident in the church. His... his uh, Purpose is not to the individual believer so much as it is to the church of Jesus Christ. Much of what we're going to read, though of course that has personal application, right? All of it, I mean the church is made up of individuals, so all of it has personal application. But we must never lose sight of the fact that ultimately Paul is, is uh, uh, consumed with the idea or is addressing the church, the body itself, the entire body. Much of what, you know, if, I mean, it's, I'll give you the best, the clearest example of that that I can. And the part we're going to get to where he talks about the body of Christ and having different roles and different parts, clearly that's not a personal individual application, right? Because he's not talking, I mean, he's talking about parts, but he's talking about that the whole should have parts in it. That's not something that each of you individually apply and say, you're up here, Caleb, so I'm going to look at you, and say, Caleb is the whole and he has parts inside of him. No, no, no. The church is the whole and has parts, Caleb of which is one of them, inside of it. Does that make sense? But we should just remember that all of the letters should be interpreted that way. All of the you's that we read, for the most part, should be interpreted as to the church, a plural you. You've heard me say things like that before. Well, let's spend a little time with each of these themes. The exaltation of Christ, primarily in chapters one through three, as he lifts up who Jesus is. In these chapters, we are going to see, among other things, 
that Jesus is the cornerstone of the building, that Jesus is the head of the body, that Jesus is the husband of the bride. These are all uh, pictures, all phrases that Paul is going to use as he's working its way through this book. And in every one of those things, you notice what he says about Jesus. He's the cornerstone. That's the place on which everything rests. He is the head. That's the place where direction comes from, right? That's the one that's in charge. That's, that's the one who, who determines where to go and what to do and how to respond to things. It's the head. And he is the husband. And we're going to see, as scripture points out, that that actually reinforces the same kind of thing. But he's Picking out a little bit different. We'll, we'll tease that out a little bit later here. But uh, he's the husband of the bride. Now, more specifically, I just want to bring some sub-themes out. And they should resonate. They should sound familiar because of the opening. This is why I did it this way. The opening verse is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see in these first three chapters in the exaltation of Jesus Christ that Paul makes it clear that grace is found in Christ. He wants to elevate or to highlight the incredible grace found in Christ. The first opening uh, verses and uh, words are all about the grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ. What is somewhat hidden through the first chapter comes on full display in the sec first part of the second chapter where we read, word, where we read words like this. But God, uh, chapter 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he says it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Those words are probably pretty familiar. They're words we hear pretty often out of the New Testament. They're very familiar, very favorite for many of us. But those words highlight in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why Jesus is worthy of all of our praise is because of the grace that comes to us, the unmerited favor that comes to us in Christ. He brought it down to us, right? God's imminent and amazing and incredible grace was brought down to us in Jesus. Now, it's on display in many other ways too, no question. But chief among those, I would not want to experience all the other ways of God's grace without Jesus, without his coming, without what he did, without the grace that came through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. All the rest of God's kindness, kindnesses would probably fall short. Now, that's really kind of a foolish statement or argument to even have because uh, that's not how God did it, and that's not how God, it's not even worth talking about, because God did from the beginning exactly what he was planning on doing. I merely said that as evidence. We find incredible grace in Christ. It's one of the reasons that we worship him. We also find, as we're going to find out, again, this should sound familiar, we find incredible peace in Jesus Christ. In fact, I would tell you, we cannot find peace without Jesus Christ. Again, I said this, but it's why he's called the Prince of Peace, excuse me, the Prince of Peace. True peace, even peace that comes from God, does not exist without Jesus. He's the one who ushered it to us. He's the one that continues as he left. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. I don't want to be, get carried away by, by technicalities. But we find peace in Christ. For example, if we continue reading in chapter 2, we would read these kind of words. Chapter 2, verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, all of these verses I'm reading today, we're not going in depth, we're not studying them. I'm simply reading them to you to highlight to you why I'm picking these themes and the sub-themes that we are. We're gonna dig into them all a lot deeper as we go through. But in these verses, it's very clear, right? It's declared to us, Jesus himself is our peace. Now, just quickly, because I, I don't want it to be a distraction or because, you, uh, whatever, if it causes you to wonder, he does address two different levels of peace there. He's talking about those who are far off, Gentiles, and those who were near, Jews, and Jesus, when he came, brought peace, unity, joined them together, both of those together. But together, all of them then, if you keep reading there, he brought them because so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, meaning he brought the Jews who were near, the Gentiles who were far, together as one, and all of them joined together with God through the cross. I don't know if you've ever contemplated these kinds of things and if you will necessarily now, but as a little seed for thought before, until we get to this part of chapter two down the road sometime, have you ever thought about how does it work that Jesus made peace through a very violent thing called the cross? He brought peace through, he divided the wall of hostility. He broke down those things by allowing his body to be punished and broken. Well, as we exalt Jesus Christ, we see that it's because of the grace we find in him. It's because of the peace we find in him. I'm going to add one more to this because it's also very evident in these first opening two chapters of the love that we see or we receive in Jesus Christ. Paul would continue to write that he is a minister of this gospel, this gospel of peace that unites Jews and Gentiles and unites everyone back to God. That's what he's talking about. And as he does that, he ends chapter 3 with these kinds of words. This is starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Powerful prayer so far, but here's what he's really after. Verse 17 goes on. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. This is the strength he wants you to have. He asked you to have strength. Not strength to, I mean, it is partly strength to overcome everything, but the strength he really wants you to have is strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, again, there's a whole bunch there that we have to dig into at some point. We're going to get there a few months down the road. But for this morning, I want you to see that one of the reasons that Christ is exalted by us is that he is the chief 
intermediary of God's great love for us. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. There it is, plain, spelled out. Can't argue with it. In Jesus Christ, we see more clearly than in anything else the great, great love that God has for us. And Paul is saying, I am praying that you would have the strength to know this love, even though he says it's beyond all knowledge. You can't even, you can't even get to the end of it. You can try swimming in the ocean, but you'll never reach the other side. You can try walking in the forest of God's love, but you'll never get to the other end of it. You'll never get to where you have stopped experiencing and exploring the newness and the greatness of how amazing God's love is for you in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're astute this morning and paying attention, you realize that when I read my opening verse and I gave it as a rationale for my points that I'm making, that it said grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ and did not mention love and I went off the script and mentioned love. I just want to point out to you that when Paul ties his entire letter together, the very end, the last two verses say this. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Though he did not mention that word love, I have no doubt that it is, of course, of the utmost of his mind as he's interpreting this or reading this letter to us or writing this letter to us. The exaltation of Christ happens. He is lifted up because it is in Christ that the manifest grace and the incredible peace and the unbelievable love of God is put on display and given to us through Jesus. This is why we exalt in him. Now, at the end of chapter 3, I, I, I stopped reading the last two verses. Let me just read them for you now. I'll put them on the screen for you because they are a transition. They are two, two ver well, there's one sentence, but they are a transition from the first part, the exaltation of Christ, and the second part, Christ and the church. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want us to see this morning as we're painting with broad strokes and seeing the, the major themes of the book of Ephesians, I want us to see this as a transition. It is at the end of those, that, that sentence where he reminds us of the glory of Christ. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. But it's in the beginning that he's making his, his transition to the next part because what he's going to spend his next part of this, his letter talking about is how that all this exaltation of Christ, all the grace in Christ and all the peace in Christ and all the love in Christ should be put on display through the church of Christ. And that gets pretty messy and difficult, doesn't it? Or doesn't it? Do you often or always perfectly display the peace of Christ in your life or the grace of Christ in your life or the love of Christ in your life. It gets difficult, doesn't it? Which is why he introduces it to us by saying to the one who can do far more than you think is possible. Let's be honest, friends. We know us. We know our selfishness. We know how we want to just do what we want to do. We want to satisfy our own flesh. If it were up to us, we would all just do anything that pleases us and not please anybody else. And we understand how strong that pull is, which is why he's saying, I'm about to write some things to you that are going to be difficult for you. 
And I want you to begin that by recognizing as I have glorified Christ, may he be glorified forever and ever, amen, that you know that he is the one who will do and can do far more abundantly in you than what you even ask or think. May it be said of us, Riverview, that when we read verses in from chapter 4 through 6 and we bump into hard things and say, this is how I'm supposed to act, I don't know if I can do that, that we think back to this and say, well, have I recognized that God can do more than I ask or think is possible in me and in us? To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we dealt with the exaltation of Christ and now Paul is going to turn his attention to saying, this Jesus, this grace and this peace that comes from God the Father and in Jesus Christ is evident in Jesus Christ. This should be put on display in the church. We should see Christ in the church. Now, I think that makes just like logical sense, right? If Christ is to be exalted by the church, then he must by necessity be evident in the church. It can't be any other way. You might flip that around, in fact, and say if Christ is not evident in the church, he's probably not being exalted by the church. Now, Paul gets pretty specific in some things he's talking about, so I want to just give you a couple of sub-themes under this heading of Christ in the church. In chapters 4 to 6, some of the things that Paul talks about, he talks to us about walking in him. He uses this word walk a number of times, five to be exact, where he uses that phrase specifically. I'll just, uh, since you asked, I'll just read them for you. Ephesians, oh, you didn't ask. I'll read them for you anyway. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one. Remember I said it might get a little hard and sticky and tough and messy? Right there, it didn't take long, right? Very first verse of chapter four. <laughs> Christ in the church tells us we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and it involves things like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other, eager to maintain unity in the Spirit. It isn't going to take us long to realize we need God's grace and peace and love that is found in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it ain't going to happen. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. A little bit later in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In chapter 5, he opens up chapter 5, in verse 2, by saying, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we should uh, walk, in a, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We should not walk as the Gentiles do in their dark understanding. We should walk in love. A few verses later in verse 8, we've already covered this because it's what I titled the entire series. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And a few verses after that in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as unwise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul makes it clear to us, friends, our faith is to be an active faith. Our service of Jesus, our devotion to Jesus, it's a little bit like what Aaron was talking about this morning, our devotion to Jesus, our holiness, if you want to put it that way, is to be an active expression of those things. We are not those people who say, I am saved and now I will sequester myself in as much safety as I possibly can find and wait till Jesus comes and takes me home. We walk out our faith. 
That's why he uses the word over and over again. You might actually compare this to the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples. Go, therefore, into all the world, into all the nations, and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey me in everything. A little bit of my paraphrase at the end. But go, we often look at that word go and think it means that we must go somewhere over there. Most scholars would recognize that if you were looking at the, the, the grammar there, it actually doesn't really carry that context as much as it says uh, going or as you go or as you are on your way. In other words, everything you do ought to be about uh, bringing more disciples into Jesus, into his kingdom and teach him to obey. It's not like there's a select few that are sent and go and the rest of us have no mandate. The correct commission is for all of us. It's why Paul uses these words. Walk. Walk in a manner worthy. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Walk wisely. Make the best use of time. Walk as children of life. Walk in love as Jesus did. Walk, walk, walk. As you are going, our faith, brothers and sisters, should be active. The grace of Jesus Christ put on display in this church should be active, not passive. The love of Jesus Christ in this church should be active and not passive. And the peace in Jesus Christ in this church should be active and not passive. We are to walk in him. Furthermore, Paul spends some time, as you continue reading chapters 5 and into 6, spends some time defining to us how this grace and this peace and this love works itself out as we are relating to each other, but relating in him. He speaks of Various relationships, right? If you know Ephesians, you know these things. He speaks of husbands and wives. He speaks of parents and children. He speaks of masters and slaves. Or for many times in, in, in our times, we, we, we bring those verses and talk about employer-employee relationships. He's telling us that this grace and peace and love of Jesus Christ that's, uh, that's obvious, that's, that's, that's seen in the church, is, is, is expressed as we relate with each other. It must be. Otherwise, it's to no effect, right? How can we speak of the grace and peace and love of Jesus Christ and go home in our families and just put none of it on display? It can't work that way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? That's why he says those things. He gives us practical advice. Do I need to say it again? Things that we will bump into that are hard and messy and difficult to carry out. But he gives us practical advice as how we are to relate with each other in him. And finally, at the end of the book, end of the letter, he talks about, notice the irony here, because I spent so much time emphasizing the walking part, and now he talks about standing in Jesus. He talks about the reality of the enemy we have who is always, always, always assailing against the church. When Jesus asked the disciples who they said he was, and Peter said, we believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and remember what Jesus said? He said, blessed are you, this didn't come from you, didn't come from man, but from God. And upon this, that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But trust me, the gates of hell are, pretend, are, are trying, but they will not stop trying until that day comes. So Jesus, as he is bringing grace and peace and love and it's put on display in the church, Paul writes to us and says, that is evidence in how you stand in him against 
the offenses of the enemy. But I want to tell you, it's not just, this is the section, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we call it the armor of the Lord. We're pretty familiar with that. We'll touch on that as we get to the end of the, of the letter here. But it's not just to withstand the, the enemy without. It is also to stand in Jesus Christ facing the evil that comes from within. I think I've probably said things like this to this church before. I know if, you've ha- if I've, we've ever spent any time in individual one-on-one discipleship, we've talked about things like this. But temptation comes because of the evil desires that are within us, not from, out, not from out there. Now, sure, Satan tempts us, no question about that. But it's only a temptation if it's an evil desire we already have inside of us, right? I love to ask people this question. If you could somehow sequester yourself away in some bulletproof concrete chamber where no one else could get around to you, would you still face temptation? And I would tell you absolutely you would. Because they come from the evil desires within you. So when we stand in him, it is not only to withstand that which comes from outside. It is also to withstand that which comes from in here that constantly battles against the spirit and what he wants to do in us. And he gives us effective weapons to stand in this grace and in this peace and in this love which is found in Christ. As we read these Uh, last chapters, and we read this letter in totality, we see that the church is the building. Where Jesus is the cornerstone, the church is the building. That where Jesus is the head, the church is the body. Where Jesus is the husband, the church is the bride. You see those phrases, they show up together and they're talking about both sides. The exaltation of Christ is that he's the cornerstone. But Christ in the church means that the church is the building. The exaltation of Christ is that he is the head. But he's the head of the body. Christ in the church is the church is the body, his body. And where Christ is exalted as the husband, Christ in the church means that we see ourselves as the bride of Christ. We are his bride, preparing ourselves for his return for the wedding that is to come. Let me make this statement as I wrap this up this morning. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is going to be clear as we read through this letter. And we'll also see clearly that Christ is to be in the church. But let me make this statement and make it as clear and plain as I can. For Christ to be in the church, it must mean that the church is in Christ. And I phrase it that way very specifically because I believe it is one of the clearest things we can learn from reading the book of Ephesians. I have not mentioned this to this point yet, but one of the clearest things we should take away from the book of Ephesians is this phrase, in Christ. 35 times directly mentioned in six chapters is this phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, or in Him. Direct references. You can actually find a few more that are, you can make the case are indirect references to the same phrase, in Jesus. It's not quite as plain, so I didn't count them. 35 times, you can go home and read your text and count them. 35 times Paul says in the book of Ephesians something along the lines of, in Christ, in Jesus, in him. We have no ability to display Christ with our church if our church is not in him, is not in Christ. 
I mean, the same goes for us individually, right? We will not be an ambassador for Christ or put him in display or have any light to shine whatsoever if we are not in Christ. It is this phrase that he uses over and over again, and it is something I have great anticipation of as we go through the book of Ephesians in exploring and discovering and entering into ourselves. How do we find ourselves to be in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? From reading this letter, I would tell you being in Christ is everything. It is, should be the central focus of our lives, that we are in Christ. I would tell you that our theology, if we understand it correctly, says that we will not arrive safely into heaven if we are not in Christ. We better know what it is, what it means, how to be there. And I think God gave us this letter in some respect. Give us the whole Bible for this, but this letter certainly for us to explore that theme and to not be left wondering, but to see what that looks like. We must be found in Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we will endeavor to start off. You see at the bottom of your hand out there, if you're paying attention, I give you what the next verses are. We're going to cover verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 and go on that way. I'll try to do my best to tell you where I go next. It may change a little bit as we go along, but that way my intention is that you can uh, read those verses during the week if you'd like to. I would, by the way, encourage you to be reading the entire book of Ephesians. It's not that long to read the entire book of Ephesians multiple times as we go through this study. Again, it's one of those things that helps provide context, helps provide synthesis for the entire, uh, the entire book to keep it all together. It's what I do when I'm studying. You don't necessarily have to be doing it for studying purposes, although it's good too, but just so that every week when you're hearing the little, the little snippets, when you're seeing the trees in the forest, that we don't lose the forest in the middle of those trees. Read the book of Ephesians often. One more thing, if you'll permit me this morning. Maybe some of you noticed as you walked in today, I put a little lectern out there and I had these little slips of paper on them. How many of you picked one up on the way in? You should have. If you didn't, you can pick it up on the way out. Heidi and I were having these kinds of conversations and at home and I... Uh, just thought, you know, Lord, I think maybe this is something we should walk into. We, we speak very highly, rightfully so, by the way, but we speak very highly of the value of Bible quizzing for our children and the value of putting the Word of God in our heads. And uh, one comment that my wife and I have often made is that uh, it, we get frustrated with the uh, parents of white pigeons sometimes who say, yeah, I want my children to come to Bible school because I went, it was so great. And we think, well, why don't you come now still then? Why don't you come to church? And it's a bit of one of those, you know, it's easy to see in other people, not always easy to see in us. It's a bit of one of those things where we say, it's really great for our kids to be memorizing the Bible. Then why don't we? If it's so great, why don't we? So, I don't know if you're going to be willing or unwilling participants or if you will even participate at all, but I went ahead and picked some passages. I think it's good for us not just to memorize a verse, but a passage, text, and... Um, It'll take us, I don't know, three months or so probably to work our way through first, uh, the first two chapters of Ephesians. And uh, so I picked out a passage that I think is particularly relevant. And I'd like to uh, just have us work every Sunday as we get together. We'll, I'll try to remember to read through it, and you'll read through it with me. Uh, and we'll see if we can memorize this passage. Adults. Now, children, of course, are welcome to join us. I can tell you it's probably going to be a lot easier for them than it is for us. Put some effort into it. You and I do not know, but that the time may come that we don't have ready access to the Word of God. Have you thought about that? I think there's a couple of key passages in this scripture, this book of Ephesians, that might be very, very helpful to us should that time come to us in our lifetime. 
this be one of them. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10. If you have a card with you this morning, why don't you pick it out? If you don't, if you, if you didn't get one, I'm sorry. I did not make it plain to you that you should. So you might be left out a little bit, but we're gonna read through it together. So just uh, read with me. We're gonna just read right through it. Paul is a master of long sentences, so we're gonna have to try to pay attention to some uh, 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 punctuation marks and read through it as, as good as we can. But read through it with me, if you will. Just read it out loud. I'm going to be Mike, I'm going to be Mike so you're going to hear me more than yourselves. But uh, read through it with me, if you would. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may notice as you read through that, there's several times already where you see that in Christ Jesus shows up. By the way, one of the indirect references that I refer to is actually the very last verse there. Depending on how you read that verse, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. Most translations say in them, choosing to say that the subject is the good works, so that the in and, and autos, which is the Greek there, it really, the, it, the, the Greek there is really enautos, which means in and autos is this word which is sort of like a pointing backwards. It really just refers back to the thing that was just said before that. So if you think the subject is the good works, then it makes sense to translate it as they did, in them. You could read it that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which is really what he wants us to know, which means that we should walk in him, in Christ, not in them, the good works. Neither here nor there, it's not a clear reference, so I can't make that argument for you, but that's one of those cases that's in scripture here in Ephesians, that's an indirect reference to, uh, you could make the case that it was also another time he's using that phrase in Christ Jesus or in him. I don't know how it works best for you, but spend some time with this. Uh, again, my, in, my in, intention is to read through this on Sundays so that we become familiar with it as a group. I believe it also will be good for us as it becomes sort of the, um, the mantras or the, uh, the, the, the banners with which we identify ourselves with. These are good things for us, right? As a group, if we want to have an identity in Christ Jesus as a church, as a body, not as individuals, but as a body, it's good for us to be repeating the same things and say, this is who we are. We all once were like those out there doing whatever we wanted to, disobedient to God. But God in his mercy saved us by his grace. Well, 
you're like me, I often sort of try to chunk it up. You can do it however you want to. But uh, if you didn't have, pick one up on the way out, pick one up in, or in the way in, pick one up on the way out. I'll go over this next week again because I know we have some people missing and we'll just sort of find our way into it. But hope you're willing to go on a little journey that might stretch us a bit. You know, today I'm going to just invite you to stand. We're going to pray together. I'll uh, sort of wrap my closing prayer and my benediction all into one. I've been sitting there for a while. Thanks for your good attention this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what you have in store for us in this letter of the Ephesians that uh, Paul wrote. I pray, God, that... uh, they would not just be an academic intellectual exercise in understanding this letter, but that it would become a living, vibrant, active part of our identity and our uh, faith walk, our, 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 our living out of what we say we believe here in this congregation. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that you have brought here into this local body that have desired to walk faithfully to you. And I pray, God, that you would meet our desires And in fact, you would increase those desires to be found even more faithful. Help us, Father, to walk as children of light, trying to discern what is pleasing to you. For it is you that we want to give glory to. We lift high the name of Jesus Christ. We receive him as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the one by whom and for whom and uh, in whom all things are made and in, in whom all things are held together, the exact representation of you, God, And we receive Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf so that we might be right with you. It is only in him where we can be counted at peace with you, Father. Thank you. Now send us this morning in the grace of Jesus, in the peace of Jesus, and in the love of Jesus Christ as we walk and relate with each other and stand firm, faithful to the end. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace this morning.